So there's literally paper on a lot of these windows. Yeah, I know. I'm looking for the main... Like, let's see if we can see into the main lobby. I'm in San Francisco with Fez Siddiqui, standing outside of Twitter's headquarters. It's a stocky Art Deco building downtown that takes up a whole city block. SF's famed cable cars run by it on Market Street, and passersby wander into the fancy food court on the bottom floor. It's a weekday around lunchtime, and besides the people getting food to go, Twitter headquarters feels like a ghost town. A lot of those identifying signs that this is a multinational, highly influential tech company, a lot of those are gone. Now that lobby is basically nondescript. You might as well be walking into a storage facility. I wanted to come here with Fez because he's been covering Elon Musk for years. And I've been trying to wrap my head around what's been happening inside of Twitter. It's been a little over a year since Elon reached a deal to buy Twitter for $44 billion. I mean, it was another six months or so of legal battles before he actually took over the company. But for the past six months, he's been in charge. He talked about this recently in an interview with the BBC. So, how do you think it's gone? Well, uh, it's not been boring. <laughs> it's been quite a roller coaster. Not even Elon can deny that the past year at Twitter has been chaotic. And like a lot of people, I can't help but be fascinated by the spectacle and the man behind it. When I graduated from college, there were three areas that I thought would be most impactful to the future of humanity. The three were the internet, space exploration, and, uh, and, and then changing the economy from a mine-and-burn hydrocarbon-based economy to one which is solar electric, which I think is going to be the primary but not exclusive uh, means of uh, energy and transportation. So Elon Musk is in his early 50s. He was born in South Africa but came to the U.S. in the early 90s for school. He became an entrepreneur early. When he was 12, he created a video game and sold it. His first massive success came when he founded the company that became PayPal and sold it for more than a billion dollars. But instead of taking an early retirement, Elon reinvested that money into new companies, a now popular Silicon Valley tactic. He went on to found SpaceX, was an early investor in Tesla. The list goes on. Andy's become so well-known that the world refers to him simply as Elon, something we're going to do throughout this episode. Depending on who you ask, Elon Musk is a genius, a troll, a free speech advocate, or a hypocrite. Musk has completely changed the vibe of Twitter, the perception of Twitter, the culture inside Twitter. Musk has a high tolerance for risk, but he cares a lot about public perception. And so the high tolerance for risk says, hit that button, and then, oh my God, massive backlash. I always find it really interesting to look at Quora questions about Elon Musk. You know, people will look at, like, how many hours does he sleep a day? What does he read? He's now effectively at the center of the culture wars because Twitter has come to symbolize so many of the debates in the United States about what you can and can't say online. He is no longer just the most talked about and written about business leader. He's like one of the most talked about people on earth. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. 
I'm Eliza Dennis. I'm usually a producer on this show, but I'm going to be your guest host today. It's Monday, May 15th. Today on the show, we are chronicling the last year at Twitter. We'll look at what motivated Elon to buy Twitter in the first place, what his strategy has been, and whether he's accomplished what he set out to do as he steps down as CEO. I talk to reporters at The Post who know Elon best to try to understand what's behind this guy's actions and the bigger picture for the platform and the battle over who the internet is for. We also reached out to Elon himself and the press teams at Tesla and Twitter. We didn't hear back, except for an auto-reply from Twitter's press email with a poop emoji. In many ways, Elon's overhaul of Twitter is best understood through the small changes. So to illustrate, let's start with a tiny example. Says, I noticed for like a while there, Twitter had this new icon on the homepage, uh, and it wasn't the bluebird anymore in the corner. It was actually a dog. Uh, can you explain what that was? Uh, it was actually a doge. <laughs> okay, the doge. It's a meme of a dog, a Shiba Inu. This is a years-old meme at this point. This is not like a current meme. It got adopted by the crypto community and became its own currency, the Dogecoin. But as for why it ended up as Twitter's logo for a few days? The explanation is actually quite simple. On March 26, 2022, Elon Musk tweeted, Is a new platform needed? This was before he was buying Twitter, but I guess he was thinking about it. Someone responds just buy Twitter, and change the bird logo to a doge. And Musk replied, ha that would be sick. And so roughly a year later, Elon Musk was in charge. It was like right after April Fool's Day, and people opened their Twitter app to find that the bird logo had been changed to the doge. Bada bing, bada boom. That simple. <laughs> so, I mean, he's just trolling us, right? Like, what's the point of making this icon the doge? People sometimes wonder if there's any, like, rhyme or reason to these things. And then, like, you realize this is a promise kept. <laughs> and he can say, you know, I told you I was going to do it, and I did it. I'm the same person I told you I was all along. Something all my colleagues who cover Elon told me is that whenever he does something off-putting or ridiculous, people are quick to call it trolling. Even a year ago, there were people who thought we couldn't take his claim that he would buy Twitter seriously. Everyone was like, this guy is a troll. These are jokes. And it's like, this is a serious amount of money. He had been talking more and more about the decline of free speech on the internet and what he saw as the infringement by this liberal anti-free speech group on the open internet. And so he had an idea in his mind. He had money in his pocket. But, like, there's a limit to, I think, how much money a person will spend on a joke. You do not pour billions of dollars into a venture like this if your goal is simply to troll people. Of course, there has been some trolling along the way. 
But it was becoming clearer and clearer that Musk intended to make an offer and ultimately conduct a hostile takeover of Twitter, which is essentially, I am putting an offer on the table. I dare you to stop me. And mostly, I dare you to tell your shareholders that you're rejecting my offer of 54.20 per share, which is significantly more than the company was valued at at the time. Twitter is a household name. And I think a lot of people assume that it was thriving. I mean, the company was an underperformer that turned meager profits if they did. And it was having trouble showing relevant targeted ads to people and racking up, you know, the same type of ad spending as a Facebook or a TikTok. And so the company was at this inflection point. Here's Will Remus. It has struggled with this tension between trying to fulfill its mission as this this global news hub, this global water cooler, and trying to actually turn a profit. And it turns out that it's just, it's really has never fully succeeded in doing both at the same time. Will covered the early days of the platform. Okay, quick Twitter history lesson. One of the first times that the Twitter team realized the value of their own product for news was when there was a a small and moderate earthquake in San Francisco. Twitter's user base, which was mostly people in the Bay Area, started blowing up the platform. Did you feel that? Did you feel the earthquake? Pretty quickly, the media realized that this was a great resource for finding sources and getting real-time updates on big events. And then it eventually took on a, a role as a place where people debated politics and culture. And it, it actually played an important role in some big world developments. Like the Arab Spring. Egypt's 18-day revolution defies all expectation. Tense new beginnings for Tunisia. Its Arab neighbors nervous of how revolutionary feelings could spread. I feel like the Arab Spring was a real defining moment for the platform. This is Natasha Tiku, Silicon Valley culture reporter. It allowed them to reframe social networks and social networking and social media very differently from the kind of frivolous way that it had been perceived before. And so all of a sudden, social media platforms were being perceived as democratizing forces. And that was because so many activists across all of these different countries who were protesting authoritarian regimes were using these platforms to spread their message, to connect with each other, to reach the outside world. Social networks were able to market their technology as an instigator for good, a benevolent force, Twitter especially. I think that they were able to position it as as a news resource and kind of this global firehose of information that's not an inaccurate way to describe Twitter. The Twitter founders leaned into this reputation for their platform. You know, they famously like to call it the free speech wing of the free speech party, and they advocated for keeping content up that governments tried to take down more so than other social networks. So all of those ideas kind of fed into this image of of Twitter as a global town square and also kind of fed into the idea that this private platform was a public good. A global town square. Even with more recent drama over the spread of disinformation and hate speech on the platform, 
Twitter has maintained this image of being the small-D democratic space of social media. A place where anyone can interact with their favorite author, politicians, maybe even a movie star. It was a universal water cooler. And a place where one particular billionaire started tweeting. A lot. Elon joined Twitter in 2009, and he seemed to become addicted. At one point, I was wondering whether we could try to calculate how many seconds slash minutes slash hours a day Elon spends on Twitter. You know, considering his his penchant for hard work and sleeping at the office, it seems like he devotes a lot of his day to tweeting. And so fast forward to 2021. Elon is the richest man in the world at the time and a Twitter fanatic. So he had a lot of opinions about how the platform was being run, especially when prominent figures like former President Donald Trump were being pushed off the site. This happened in the wake of the January 6th insurrection. Here's Fez Siddiqui again. Elon said after the Trump ban that a lot of people are going to have an issue with Silicon Valley as the, quote, de facto arbiter of free speech. Here's Elon speaking at a Financial Times summit last May. I think it was a morally bad decision, to be clear, and, and foolish in the extreme. And this is the, the point that I'm trying to make, which is perhaps not getting across, is that, there, is that banning Trump from Twitter didn't end Trump's voice. It will amplify it among the right. And this is why it is morally wrong and flat out stupid. So Elon was increasingly consumed by this view, which was reinforced by the people who he followed on Twitter, that Silicon Valley had gotten tyrannical and oppressive in the ways that it policed speech online. So the next move was just take over the company. Accumulate a stake in the company, maybe get a board seat. When that doesn't work out, hey, maybe take over the whole company. And that's what Elon started to do. He started to buy up Twitter stocks until he was one of the largest stakeholders in the company. This was last March. At that point, Twitter leadership couldn't ignore him anymore. They invited him onto the board and listened to his ideas about how he would change the company. Here's tech reporter Garrett DeVink. He was having this sort of relatively neutral to positive conversation with Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal. And he was making suggestions about changes, and Prague said, give me a call, let's talk, let's hash these things out. And at some point, Elon Musk got frustrated with the process. He didn't feel he was being heard for whatever reason. He didn't feel that the board was taking him seriously. And in one very intense text, he said, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm going to make a private offer to take over the entire company. Expect a letter from my lawyers, essentially. So that brings us to a year ago. This next part is kind of a blur. Twitter agrees to Elon Musk's offer to buy the company for $44 billion in late April 2022. But then in May, Elon claimed, without evidence, that 90% of the comments on his tweets were bots, and that the deal was on hold until he could get internal data about spam accounts on the platform. Then in July, Elon threatens to pull out of the deal entirely. Twitter sues him, Elon countersues. Now all eyes are on the courts. The legal system 
said, look, we don't care that you're the richest man in the world. We don't care that you aren't interested in norms of how the leaders of public companies should behave. You have to follow the law, and you signed a legal agreement. You have to follow through with it. So in October 2022, before the trial was set to start, Elon closes the deal, taking the company from public to private at a cost. Elon recently set a Guinness World Record for the largest loss of a personal fortune in history. He lost approximately $200 billion over the course of a year. He has gotten himself into a bit of a financial pickle, so he is definitely under a lot of pressure. Elon was feeling the stress of spending all that money. And so when he took over, he started making some drastic changes to the company. And that brings us back to Twitter headquarters. One entire building has essentially been gutted. A lot of equipment has been taken out of it. And much of Twitter, which spans two buildings, is now consolidated to one building. So it's a sign of the steep financial cuts that he's made here since taking over. In his first few months as CEO of Twitter, Elon sold off a wild amount of furniture and equipment at Twitter headquarters. Mid-century modern chairs, a succulent planter in the shape of an at sign, even a pizza oven. But the real cutbacks were to the workforce. On October 26, 2022, Elon Musk walks into Twitter headquarters the day before he was set to take over the company carrying a porcelain sink. And then he tweets a pun. Let that sink in. Basically signaling that he's not just trolling. This is really happening. He's taking over. He quickly fires a huge portion of the C-suite, immediately shaking up leadership. And then on November 3rd, 2022, just days before the midterm elections in the U.S., he sends an email to the entire company. So Twitter employees got an email telling them that by 9 a.m. the next day, they would get another email reading your role at Twitter. If that email went to their work inbox, they were safe. If it went to their personal inbox, it meant they had been laid off. So let that sink in. Twitter employees would be spending the next 12 hours or so refreshing their personal emails to see if they would still have jobs or not. I got an email as I was boarding a plane after my best friend's bachelorette party that my job had been retained, and um, I cried. This is Theo, a former Twitter employee. We're only using her first name so she can discuss sensitive internal matters. Folks who got laid off immediately obviously felt a lot of grief around being terminated or being laid off from a company that they absolutely loved working for. And for those of us who stayed, there was a lot of survivor's guilt. Half of the company was laid off this way. So that next day, people started finding out because they were losing access to Slack. They were losing access to internal tools, to email. And Twitter employees started posting on social media. They posted a salute emoji if they were included in the layoff. People on that Friday uh, said, like, they didn't know who was in charge. There was a worker who said, we have no idea what's going on. So it was a bit chaotic. 
It was not the type of tech layoff that we had covered in the past because entire teams seemed to be eliminated without rhyme or reason. Teams that were core to like keeping the website functioning. And it didn't stop from there. A few days later, there was another email. So the subject line is a fork in the road. This email is from Elon. Going forward to build a breakthrough Twitter 2.0 and succeed in an increasingly competitive world, we will need to be extremely hardcore. This will mean working long hours at high intensity. Only exceptional performance will constitute a passing grade. Twitter will also be much more engineering driven. And then there was an ultimatum. If you are sure that you want to be a part of the new Twitter, please click yes on the link below. Anyone who has not done so by 5 p.m. Eastern tomorrow, Thursday, will receive three months of severance. Whatever decision you make, thank you for your efforts to make Twitter successful, Elon. This came at midnight. People woke up to this email, uh, this sort of bizarre ultimatum. Twitter employees had a choice. Sign and stay or leave. And I signed the form, not necessarily because I was committing to that vision per se, but because there were so few of us left at the company at this time, it felt increasingly important that those of us who were staying to do this work remain resources for human rights-related issues globally as they arose. But Theo was the exception. So the story in the coming days was that people were not committing to the new Twitter 2.0, to the point that Twitter... Uh, was having trouble maintaining enough people to keep the site running. But eventually, even some people who had signed on to the hardcore Twitter 2.0 found themselves out of a job. I woke up Thursday, December 22nd and checked my Slack and saw that my password had been changed about seven hours prior, but I'd been sleeping, so it couldn't possibly have been me. And then I checked my emails, and again, I saw that my password had been changed. And so I I went up, went to my computer, tried to log in, and I saw a blank screen. I got very nervous. I, I kind of figured I, I knew what was happening. So Theo reached out to friends who had been laid off previously and asked, is this what happened to you? And they confirmed that, yes, that was indeed the case and that I should check my personal emails. And so I did. And I saw um, an email that had been sent to my personal email informing me that I was being laid off. After the first round of layoffs, teams were halved. Then people left over Elon's ultimatum. Then more cuts. Elon spoke to the BBC about the way these layoffs were handled. You sacked a lot of Twitter workers. Um, yeah. And, and, and I, I spoke to them. It was very easy to speak to them uh, when it happened. And, and, and the way they said, mm-hmm. pretty much everyone said, is, is that it felt quite haphazard. It was. And it felt a little bit uncaring. Do you, do you, do you, uh, do I wouldn't you... say uncaring. The, 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 you know, the issue is like uh, the, the company's either going to go bankrupt uh, or if, if we do not cut costs immediately. Um, this is not a, a caring, uncaring situation. It's like if the whole ship sinks, then nobody's got a job. Twitter is now operating with a skeleton staff of around 1,500 people. That's an 80% reduction since Elon took over. The 
the post headline was Twitter death watch captivates millions. We felt as users like we were watching this big social media platform burn to the ground in real time. Of course, the next few days would show how resilient Twitter really was, even if Elon had made it into a house of cards. And even though Twitter didn't collapse outright, there are still bugs and outages on the platform, sometimes for hours. Musk has famously called the website brittle. And it is brittle, but was it always? There's an argument that it was, but maybe the changes were kind of like you took a structurally unsound skyscraper and you put a hundred ton weight on its roof because you took so many like core people out of the site. You're not only deprived of all of these people with expertise, but you're making these big and extreme changes to the algorithm and to every part of the website. They're bound to break some other unintended part of the website, right? And when it breaks, who do you call? And all of a sudden, you are calling and you are texting and you are slacking that person. And, oh, you just realized that that person is no longer employed at the company. Who's going to fix it? And so that's sort of what Twitter is going through right now. But while Elon is dealing with chaos at a new company, he still has responsibilities at several others. I am in front of U.S. District Court in San Francisco. Back in January, I met Fez in San Francisco to chat with him about Elon Musk's latest legal trouble. Elon was facing a lawsuit brought by Tesla shareholders, alleging they lost billions of dollars because of something Elon tweeted back in 2018. Saying he had, quote-unquote, funding secured to take Tesla private at a price of $420 a share. That's a significant number, and the suit was brought in 2018, and we are now standing here in 2023. At a very weird time in Elon's life. At a very weird time where, if he wanted to, he could take, I believe it's around a nine-minute walk from the headquarters of Twitter down to the federal courthouse where he just testified. Tesla shareholders were frustrated with Elon's actions on Twitter in 2018, And now, once again, there was frustration. I mean, yeah, there is like a lot of frustration with him because of his management of Twitter and the way that Tesla is now the only public company that he has. And so its stock price reflects, in a way, the sentiment around his leadership of Twitter. Basically, since Elon took Twitter private, there's no stock price to reflect his decisions or leadership at the company. So his actions at Twitter end up reflected in the stock price of Tesla. What did he say to you when you said, hey, maybe we need to stop the tweeting? It's the same thing every time. He's not going to stop the tweeting and he doesn't care what people say. This is Ross Gerber. He's a wealth and investment manager. I think... Tesla's mission and SpaceX mission are critically important to our society, and this Twitter thing is not worth the time. Ross has invested in Tesla for about eight years now, and even considered running for a board seat. And I've had many times now throughout our history where I was kind of like, Elon, how does this advance sustainable transportation and energy? And I'll say the same thing again. How does Twitter advance sustainable transportation and energy? How does Twitter help SpaceX get to Mars. And what I'm trying to 
show now is that this actually might prevent him from achieving his goals. That being involved with Twitter might prevent him from the time he's spending and the way things are going, that there's a cost to this. And that cost is an innovation and it's in achieving goals. And stock prices. Where Elon puts his energy has a huge impact on his companies. Jurors ultimately found Elon not liable in the Tesla shareholder trial, suggesting they weren't persuaded that his 2018 tweet moved the markets. But some shareholders, including Ross, who was not part of the trial, continue to be frustrated by Elon's management style and Twitter presence. Overall, he's not going to stop tweeting, and he doesn't, and he seems almost to get a high out of pissing off everyone. Right. And so I'm I'm just kind of curious, why do you think he does that? I mean, for what little you know about him and how you've interacted with him, why why is he comfortable with that? Well, I think fame is kind of a rush. And he's become one of the most famous people in the world because he bought Twitter. And I think as the SpaceX Tesla guy, he even though I think I thought he was pretty famous, it wasn't until he bought Twitter that he sort of crossed over from these like niche engineering type people to like, now you're in the public sphere and everybody's got an opinion about what you're doing. And now you're this global personality. And part of that is a high. And so you, you buy into this high, but it's very, very hard to put down the toy when you're getting so much attention for everything you do and everybody knows and everybody cares. And you can now maybe change world politics. Maybe I'll solve hunger you know, I don't know. But you start believing your bullcrap long enough, you end up in real trouble. Real trouble. So that's what I'm worried about. The the thing that makes Elon Elon is that he he never changed his personality to fit the role, right? The personality drove the role. And so as he has become more and more of a celebrity, um, people have been shocked by the way that he runs things. But like, he hasn't changed, and for him, why should he change? He became Elon by being himself. And so instead of changing, Fez says Elon has actually doubled down on some aspects of his persona. Musk has certainly attempted to embrace a philosophy of free speech on Twitter, but his actions have told a different story at times. After the break, we talk about one of those times when our colleague, Drew Harwell, suddenly found himself banned from Twitter and confronting Elon Musk himself. I, I did not, like, go into it to, like, slam dunk on Elon Musk, I promise. Like, I really just wanted to have a conversation <laughs> with him because I felt like this was something that he was misconstruing and that people were getting confused on it. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts.
So Elon Musk bought Twitter at a moment where Republicans have deep concerns that social media companies have gone too far in censoring conservative views. This is The Post's tech policy reporter, Kat Zakreski. This is a long-running concern that we've heard from lawmakers for about half a decade now. And those concerns really escalated around 2020 when tech companies started taking a harder line on misinformation on their services, particularly related to the pandemic. And Elon Musk buying Twitter has really been a moment of celebration for conservatives in Washington because he shares their concern that social media companies have gone too far when it comes to removing content from their services. We, in effect, have seen the opposite reaction from Democrats who are deeply concerned that the moves Elon Musk has made since his takeover of the company could actually lead to more disinformation online, an increase in hate speech, a breakdown of these hard-won policies and structures intended to keep Twitter safer. And the Democrats' concern is directly related to some of the layoffs you just heard about. So, I mean, there was a trust and safety team that has effectively been almost completely dismantled since Musk took over the company. It was the team responsible for implementing policies to protect the health of conversation on Twitter. They were the ones making the difficult calls around what accounts should stay on and off the service. And they also were doing a lot of the work around protecting elections, um, which, again, was critical because Elon Musk's takeover uh, coincided with both the Brazil elections and the U.S. midterm elections. And in addition to those employee layoffs, Elon dismantled the Trust and Safety Council. That's a group of outside experts who volunteered their time to help Twitter's trust and safety team. Yeah, so basically, the email was pretty short. Here's Theo again. When at Twitter, she was usually the one communicating directly with these outside experts. But when Elon decided to dissolve the Trust and Safety Council, Theo was traveling. And so I remember when the decision was made, I was in some ways grateful that I didn't have to be the one to send the email because I don't know that I could have done that. She summarized that email for us. Our work to make Twitter a safe, informative place will be moving faster and more aggressively than ever before, and that the company would continue to welcome ideas moving forward from the Trust and Safety Council members about how to achieve this goal, but without the formal context of the Trust and Safety Council. Elon has said that one of his rules to live by is move fast and break things. And this email makes it seem like he wanted to run Twitter the same way, even when it came to things like safety on the site. The Trust and Safety Council consulted with Twitter on policies addressing really sensitive issues. Digital and human rights, child sexual exploitation, online safety and harassment, and then suicide prevention and mental health. So when the email goes out, saying Twitter is dissolving the Trust and Safety Council, Theo started hearing from council members directly. Were any concerns expressed to you about this decision? Yes, absolutely. I mean, everybody was concerned. Um, they were afraid that the issues that the Trust and Safety Council had been brought together back in 2016 to address would grow in severity and, and scale, and that without this kind of checks and balances system, uh, there would be fewer 
formal structures for Twitter to get feedback from users and from expert users on the biggest issues that it faces. Feedback that greatly influenced Twitter's user policies. I'm wondering, how much did the rules change under Elon? Um, The policy that was removed quite noticeably was COVID misinformation. It was taken down. And the hateful conduct policy was amended and split into sort of different categories vis-a-vis incitement to violence and hateful conduct that is sort of outside of that. But otherwise, mostly the policies haven't really been touched, honestly. The question is, are the rules being enforced at the same scale, right? Because rules can exist, but if they're not being enforced, it's almost as if they don't exist at all, or they exist to a much lesser extent. And of course, there have also been cuts to the Twitter rule enforcers. Content moderators globally were laid off. Of the folks who remained, I know a lot of them have left since. Even though Twitter uses algorithms to catch content that violates policies, content moderators have a big job. Often there are false positives and false negatives, and we need human reviewers to do additional review to ensure that cases are being adjudicated on appropriately. And they would be combating issues like platform manipulation, disinformation, impersonation, fraud, hateful, abusive, violent behavior, and child sexual abuse material. A lot of this content is actively illegal and really needs to be taken down like child sexual abuse material. It's not really a question about whether that content can be on the platform. It's definitively not allowed. And so it's very important that these people, that these individuals be able to do their work because they're keeping companies compliant with the law and also creating safe spaces for users where they don't have to worry about hateful and abusive and violent behavior that makes them feel threatened and uncomfortable. Something users experienced very quickly after Elon took over. Within hours, there's this massive tide of hate and violent rhetoric. Um, We see use of the N-word immediately spike. And so there's just this immediate kind of emergency and meltdown for the trust and safety team to address. There was also a cultural shift within Twitter. The culture pre-acquisition was this incredible space of consultation and collaboration across a colorful set of different teams. And um, it was transformed through the acquisition into a much more linear, top-down, directive style of decision-making. A good example of this actually involved one of our colleagues at The Washington Post and an account called Elon Jet. Here's tech reporter Drew Harwell. Elon had always said he's always going to celebrate free speech as long as it doesn't break the law, he's going to tolerate it. Remember, free speech was a huge reason Elon wanted to buy Twitter to begin with. So it was just a really clear instance of hypocrisy. Drew was reporting late last year about a rule change Elon made at Twitter to ban the sharing of any live location information on the platform. Elon and Twitter had changed the rules to explicitly ban this kind of speech, to say that it was tantamount to, quote-unquote, assassination coordinates, and that it was totally problematic. And the main account impacted by this new rule? 
Elon Jett. For years, there have been these accounts that track Elon Musk's private jet. It just basically says he left the L.A. airport and flew to New York or to D.C. or Austin. Elon was aware of this account. He even used it as proof of his commitment to free speech. Elon Musk had talked about not liking these accounts, but because he characterized himself as this free speech warrior, he had explicitly said, I'm going to protect even accounts that I don't like, even that Elon Jet account. But then suddenly in December 2022, it just vanished. Here's Jack Sweeney, a sophomore at the University of Central Florida and the brains behind Elon Jet and about 30 other flight tracking accounts on Twitter. My grandma's usual thing is, oh, I just want you to be a kid again or whatever. She couldn't believe, you know, that something like that was happening. The young Florida college student who had been running it and who had been a longtime Elon fan, he also had his account suspended. I woke up in the morning and I was just suspended and there wasn't really a reason originally. This takedown was sort of out of left field, so Drew decided to look into it, report on it do his job. We wrote a story about that, and we tweeted information about that story. Basic um, journalism. And then Drew took a break. I went to go get barbecue for my wife and daughter and was actually driving back with dinner when my phone lit up with all of these texts saying, oh, your account was suspended because of the Elon Jet thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, I was writing about suspended accounts. I'm still fine. But Drew's account was not fine. It was actually, at the time, it said it was permanently banned. With no explanation from Twitter. I didn't get an email or any alert or any notification. It just, Twitter just stopped working. And I was just really surprised because, you know, I actually didn't think I had all that adventurous of, like, a Twitter account. You know, we were just posting journalism. And that's how Drew found himself suspended from Twitter and arguing his case with Elon Musk himself. I got a message from somebody that said, people are on Twitter talking about these journalist suspensions. You know, I wonder if you could listen in. I figured I wasn't going to be able to because my account was suspended. It was late at night, but I figured I would just jump on and see what the app would say to block me. But when I tried to join the Twitter spaces, I was allowed in. And suddenly, while we were all talking, this familiar voice comes on, and it's Elon Musk himself. Twitter spaces is a way to have live audio conversations on Twitter. Anyone can join and participate, including Elon Musk. Showing real-time information about somebody's location is uh, inappropriate, and I think everyone on this call would not like that to be done to them. Elon's argument was that Elon Jet was essentially doxing him, that sharing public information about Elon's private jet was the same as posting his address on Twitter. We were just starting to tell him, like, this is public data. Every plane you have ever been on has been tracked in the exact same way. Elon Jet says nothing about who's on it, where they go once they land at the airport. This is an account you personally said you would support. So help us understand why this isn't, you know, pretty hypocritical of you to change your mind so 
so quickly. Drew, I don't think you were posting the real-time information, right? I mean, you're, you're suggesting that we're sharing your uh, address, which is not not true. Um, and you're suggesting that we're we're posting. We never. Uh, I I never posted your address. You posted a link to the address. Elon said that the account had alerted a stalker to his whereabouts. That by banning the accounts, he was just trying to protect his family from potential harm. But. As we would find out really soon in a story we would report on, police had found no connection between this Elon Jet account and this like strange episode that never led to any criminal charges that involved some guy who was on the road 30 miles away from the LA airport, you know, a day after the Elon Jet had last reported. So there was just a lot of like misinformation swirling around this and Elon Musk came on and he was trying to forward that point that this was all about public safety, that any journalists who were writing about this were threatening his life, that he was not going to take it anymore. So, you know, I was trying to speak quietly because my two-year-old was like five feet away in the next room. So it was not like the perfect interview situation. But you don't really get moments to ask Elon Musk a question directly in front of 30,000 people all that often. So, you know, I tried to pose it to him in the terms that I thought he would understand. By alluding to the Twitter files, as they've become known. When Elon took over Twitter, he started searching for evidence that Twitter was systematically suppressing certain right-leaning content. Elon had been pointing to the Twitter files and suggesting that Twitter was always censoring information they didn't want unfairly due to bias from the people who ran the company. And yet, you know, Elon was doing exactly the same thing. So I just asked, like, what's the difference? So what is different yeah, here it's and no there? More acceptable for me. It's, it's no more acceptable for me, for you, than it is for me. Same thing. So anyway... Uh, so it's unacceptable what you're doing? No. What you, you, you dox, you get suspended, end of story, that's it. And after I asked that question and he kind of, um, I think, stumbled a little bit in the answer, it was only a couple seconds after that he disappeared off the call. Oh, I think I think Elon has uh, has left. And and, you know, I think I remember saying at the time, like, it's unfortunate, right? Like, this is his moment for him to explain himself. Like, if he really does think he is being wronged by us or that we're all flouting the rules, like, come tell us and let's have a conversation about it. That's like the free speech that Elon champions. Drew is now back on Twitter after deleting the offending tweet. But he quickly reposted it, saying, quote, I'm now reposting so you can see it was just a fact. While these suspensions had their moment of publicity, a lot of the changes Elon has made to Twitter are almost invisible. I think when people open Twitter, they see a website that looks similar to what they remembered, but the changes are, like, quickly pretty discernible. There have been a lot of changes to Twitter under Elon. They're annoying to some, worrisome to others. 
But even without Elon, the platform was in need of a change. I mean, the website that Musk inherited was indisputably a mess. And it needed a significant pivot or boost of energy, philosophical change even, to make it relevant, to put it on par with the big hitters in social media. Because growth is the game here. And so Twitter had this choice to make, and it was sort of a false choice. Like, they either compete or they become irrelevant. So Elon is working to make Twitter profitable. Like his cuts to the workforce, a lot of the changes Elon is making to the platform are about money. He's trying to monetize the site, like making users pay to have a blue check mark next to their name, a badge that used to be free for accounts that might be prone to impersonation, like journalists or public figures. A few weeks ago, the original blue check marks were stripped from users' profiles. But a lot of people decided not to pay for the new subscription service, what Elon is calling Twitter Blue. Subscribers are a tough model. Newspapers learn this so early on. If you give people a product that is free, it's so difficult to get them to come back and pay for it. To ensure users stay engaged with the site, Elon gifted some badges to people with popular accounts, like LeBron James who said he wouldn't pay for Twitter Blue. That's a symptom of a website that is in dire need of engagement and that can't risk what happens like without those big names backing it. Tweets from paying accounts get more eyes due to one of Elon's biggest changes to Twitter, his new algorithmic feed, the For You page. So the For You page is Twitter's new default timeline, which shows you tweets that it thinks might appeal to you as a user. The For You page is Elon's answer to two of Twitter's fundamental issues, profitability and relevancy. It's his attempt to not be eclipsed by competing social media platforms. Musk has leaned heavily into that TikTok, YouTube Uh, to some extent, Instagram and Facebook version of the internet, which is, we are going to show you what we think you want. A version of the internet that appeals to content creators, that then hopefully appeals to advertisers, which is necessary, because when Elon took over, a lot of advertisers fled the site. Musk has really spooked advertisers with his own behavior, but also with the changes that he's made to content moderation. There are just repeated problems of advertisements, promoted tweets showing up under extremist content, and that is something advertisers absolutely don't want. And so Twitter has shed a large amount of advertising dollars, likely in the hundreds of millions, and the company's valuation as a result has sunk. Musk has admitted this. Musk said in an email to Twitter staff that the company that was valued at $44 billion when he bought it, was closer to $20 billion, you know, less than half of what he bought it for. But according to Elon, he's reversing that trend. He says advertisers are coming back to the site. Fez has noted this as well. He says he sees an ad every five to eight tweets on his For You page. The other thing I'm seeing is, like, fewer 
big brand ads. I'm seeing a lot more niche, you know, infomercial type ads. They're not literally infomercials, but like infomercial tier ads. Twitter's new for you page is also just very different from the largely chronological timeline of the past. You can still get something similar to the old Twitter experience if you toggle over to the following tab. But if you don't, you miss out on what many loved about the original platform. That you could open this app and gauge the pulse of the people you're following in real time. About everything from a TV show to presidential debates or, God forbid, a war or natural disaster. Twitter used to be a powerful news aggregator. But now when you open the app, you immediately see what the algorithm thinks you want to see. Based on content, not chronology. So a few weeks back, Fez wanted to see firsthand what content the algorithm was recommending on different For You pages. So at The Post, we conducted an experiment where we set up a group of dummy accounts, basically, that followed a subset of users in order to see what sort of recommendations it would spit out. On these dummy accounts, Fez followed profiles that the Southern Poverty Law Center identified as extremist or extremist-associated, a couple dozen of them. And when Fez logged into these experimental accounts, he noticed that the recommended content on their For You pages came from accounts that were as extreme, if not more extreme, than the ones the dummy accounts were following. There were all kinds of extremist accounts being pumped in to the For You page of accounts that were already following extremists. So in one case, I believe there was a Hitler quote with a photo of Adolf Hitler, and there were self-declared Nazi accounts. Musk also granted, I believe it was called general amnesty to previously suspended accounts, and that resulted in thousands of accounts that had previously broken Twitter's rules being restored to the site. A lot of the recommendations in Twitter's For You page, a not insubstantial amount, were coming from those previously suspended but now restored accounts. And and so the experiment showed that the recommendation algorithm holds up a mirror to your following page and decides, are you likely to engage with more of this? And what if we dial it up by 10? And Fez says this is the danger of a curated algorithm. Tons of other tech companies have used this model and they've all discovered some of its downsides. You know, echo chambers online have been shown to lead people down extremist rabbit holes. And so Twitter, by embracing curated feeds, is now going to have to contend with well-documented dangers of online rabbit holes. And, like, these are lessons that we learned years ago. They're, they're really old problems. They are not... They're not, like, without known remedies at this point. But (laughs) to Musk, those remedies come at the cost of free speech online. A sentiment Elon continued to stress in that recent BBC interview. In order for something to serve as a digital town square, it must, uh, you know, serve all people from all political persuasions. Uh, provided it's legal. Um, so free speech is meaningless unless you allow people uh, you don't like to say things you don't like. Otherwise, it's irrelevant. Um, and if at the point at which you lose uh, free speech, uh, it doesn't come back. 
Even given the turmoil of the last year, Twitter is still standing. And Elon seems hopeful. Do you have any regrets about buying Twitter? Um, I think it was something that uh, needed to be done. Um, I mean, you said, you, you said earlier that you... Difficult, you know? It's difficult, you know. I'd say that, like, the, the pain level of Twitter has been extremely high. Um, this hasn't been some sort of party. Um, so uh, it's been really quite a stressful situation, uh, you know, for the last several months. Not, not an easy one. I, I, I was... um, but apart from the pain, I mean, so it's been quite painful. Um, but I think uh, at the end of the day, it, it, it should have been done. I think did I, were there many mistakes made along the way? Of course, I'm, you know. Um, and uh, but at, you know, all's well that ends well. And so I, I, I feel like uh, we're headed uh, to a good place. But the outstanding question is, will the majority of users agree? And if not, where will they go? And what will we lose? In the age of the internet, we do lack, I think, that type of let's tune in to the evening news and all share the same set of facts and understanding of facts. And of course, Twitter emerged in an era where that was quickly eroding. But it has at least been a place where the varying factions congregated and duked it out. And what if that's gone? Do we all go into our own rabbit holes and have our beliefs fed and reinforced in those rabbit holes? And what will that unleash? So as people dive deeper into their curated For You pages or decide to leave Twitter for more niche platforms, we may be losing our universal water cooler. So I don't know. It's not to say that the old Twitter was necessarily a good thing, but it is to say, like, we are turning the page on a chapter and potentially stratifying even further as a society. A year ago, Elon Musk asked his followers on Twitter a question. Is Twitter dying? It's a question everyone is struggling to answer after roughly six months under Elon's leadership. But what is clear is that it's been transformed. Algorithmically, financially, institutionally. And few believe it's for the better. With Twitter right now, what is it? I think it used to be alive, right? you could feel like the pulse of the website and the conversation happening there. And as the conversation splinters, like, will it still be alive or will it be zombie Twitter? <laughs> Late last week, Elon announced that he chose a new CEO. Linda Yaccarino is the former head of NBC Universal's Global Advertising and Partnerships. NBCU announced her departure Friday morning. Elon will still own Twitter, but she will be the public face of it. And the culture may very well change once again. Hez Siddiqui is a tech reporter for The Post. You also heard from Garrett DeVink, Drew Harwell, Natasha Tiku, Willa Remus, and Kat Zakreski. Big, big thank yous to Joe Men, Rachel Lerman, Laura Stevens, and Christina Passariello. This episode was produced by me, 
and edited by Maggie Penman. It was mixed by Sean Carter. Gabe O'Connor helped with fact-checking. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Eliza Dennis. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.